0: Well, thank you, Ben, for your uh, for praying for us and for reading the scriptures. For, uh, on behalf of the body, Rosie, thank you. And thank God for your testimony. Uh, real good job just uh, you know, honoring and glorifying Christ. It's you know, been encouraged. And, and um, I will be on my knees this week to pray for your brother. That God would show the same mercy and grace that He showed to you, your brother, as well. Thank you for that. <clears throat> Well, as Ben prayed, uh, next week, Marcus and I will be going to Kazakhstan to do a scouting trip to prepare for the summer mission team that will be going um, this summer. We're sending 19 men and women to three different countries, Czech Republic, Ireland, and Kazakhstan. Just received an email from Pastor Pahadshan Mukachev in Almaty, and we talked about our accommodations for Marcus and I while we were there. And he asked me where we would like to stay. Um, We can stay at a hotel for seven nights or an apartment. Or we could stay with him at his church and sleep on benches. Um, He said it's a very difficult way to stay, but that's um, where he's staying right now. And my reply to him was, hotel sounds good. No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My reply was, hey, brother, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for us. We would love to stay with you and sleep on the benches and um, fellowship with you for those seven nights. So please pray for us. For Marcus, that's a dream come true for him. It's one of those you guys, you know, rugged. For me, uh, it's going to be a challenge. And um, so pray for us. We look forward to... Um, we want to just scout out ministry opportunities, evangelism opportunities, how we can best serve Pastor Bahachan and his church other believers there, and how strategically the most effective way to evangelize the lost in that country. Well, what a joyous study it's been in John chapter 12. In preparing for our time this morning, I took out my calculator to see, kind of get a big picture of what we've been studying for the past eight, nine years. Previously at Cypress Baptist and starting five years ago at at Cornerstone Bible Church. Uh, We've been studying the Bible verse by verse since 1996, for eight years now. we studied verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew from February 95 through August 15, 1999. So for four and a half years, we've studied through the Gospel of Matthew. After that, starting in October 99 to January 2001, as Cornerstone Bible Church, we studied through 1 Timothy, verse by verse. And we began our journey in the Gospel of John in July 2001, and we've been at it for two and a half years. And if God allows, we will finish this year, December 2004, uh, if God wills. No promises. For about seven years, every Sunday, we have had the great privilege of learning about Christ from the Word of God. For over seven years, directly, we've been either in the Gospel of Matthew or in the Gospel of John. And for those of you who have been with us in that journey, I know it's been a life-transforming time. Fixing our eyes on the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know it has been for me, Um, you know, Rosie looks at her journal and her recording of Pastor John Shim's sermons and sees how much she's grown, well, for me, I look at my sermon notes, and I'm kind of embarrassed when I go back to 1996 and see three-page sermon notes (laughs) filling up an hour, growing to five, growing to ten. Today, we're at 19 pages, so um, just seeing my own heart being transformed by the Word of God been a joyous thing to see. Thinking about it, this has been one of the greatest joys of my time here at Cornerstone. I'm so privileged to teach God's Word every Sunday. And really privileged to teach God's Word directly from the gospels, to have Christ before my eyes and have Christ before the eyes of the saints here. And so privileged to teach the Word of God to saints who are so hunger and thirst for the Word of God. I've really in all my time here, I've never felt pressed to tickle your ears. I've never felt that I had to tell stories or jokes or do juggling acts and dog and pony show up here to keep the attention of the believers here. I've always only been pressed to teach and expose the Word of God in all its fullness and to, have, to see you grow and be transformed and hunger for it all the more and delight in it Has been a supreme joy of my life. And thinking about how much we've all learned about our Lord in the past seven years of studying the gospels, I am again reminded of the fact, the sorrowful fact that so so many Christians, so so many Christians know so very little about Christ. How so many don't know his teachings have a wrong understanding of His teachings. So few you know the marvelous and thrilling details about our Lord. The profound blessing, the heart-wrenching details about our King remain unknown to most Christians. It seems that there are many Christians who know the characters and the details of a movie better and the details of the life of Christ. I read a few weeks ago, there's a new kind of karaoke in New York, storming across America. It's not songs, but it's movie scenes. Have you guys read that? Or you go to a karaoke room, and you act out scenes of a movie, <laughs> and people know these lines by heart. Well, the sad truth is, so many Christians know this complete dialogue of a movie, and yet, they're hard-pressed to know the words of Christ. <laughs> There are many Christians who can tell you all the details about movie stars, about TV shows, know every song on the radio, know with great detail sports statistics, and yet know so little about our Lord and Savior. And I sense that in my own heart, my own shallow understanding of Christ. And as I, and as we come upon John 12, 27 through 30 this morning, I sense my utter inadequacy to study and teach this text. When I was little, I remember putting on my dad's shoes and thinking, wow, my dad's got big feet. And I felt like there were two big boats, you know, that I'm wearing. And I was too small to fill his shoes. Well, I have that same sense this morning as I consider John 12. I sense in my own heart that I am not prepared to preach this text, meaning spiritually, in my devotion to Christ, in my holiness, in my zeal for his word, I find myself too small of a man to tackle such a great passage about our Lord. The mystery, the paradox of this passage is too deep. Here is the God man crying out to God. The trouble in his heart. The perplexity. The sorrow. The anguish. I cannot even begin to comprehend. And I am saddened this morning that I am not doing this text justice. I fall woefully short of the reality of the scriptures. So I come before the text with a humble prayer. that The Holy Spirit would be diligent to do his work in the heart of the saints here this morning. That the Holy Spirit would teach us. That the Holy Spirit would teach me and Himself teach you. I hope that you will leave this morning's study with a profound appreciation and a profound understanding of just one verse. Verse 27. I pray that you would think deeply and seriously about this one verse. And the next time you are tempted to sin against Christ... Next time you ask yourself and you contemplate whether carrying the cross is worth it, whether passionately following Christ is worth it. Next time you wrestle in your soul about whether you ought to lay your life down completely before Christ and give it all in the pursuit of Christ. Next time I pray that you will remember verse 27 where Christ says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I pray that by the time our time is done, that this singular verse will be branded upon our hearts. And it will stay with us for the rest of our days. Well, let me quickly set the historical scene here for all of us. Um, If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you understand that John 12 records our Lord's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. On the exact day prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, exactly 483 years after King Artaxerxes gave his decree to rebuild Israel, According to Gabriel's prophecy in Daniel 9, on that exact day Christ entered Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of God. This is Palm Sunday, five days from His death. Our Lord enters, seated on a donkey, revealing Himself as a Prince of Peace. The city is under siege. The city is under judgment and condemnation of God the Father. Unless it submits to the will of God, God's wrath, God's judgment is imminent. So He comes as a mediator, the great Prince of Peace, sitting on a donkey, to bring reconciliation between God and this city. Well, the mass of the people welcome Him as their King, as their Messiah, cry not, Hosanna, save us now, King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he enters the temple area, he makes a beeline to the money changers, the sellers of animals, and he he kicks them out once again. The second time he does this in his ministry, zeal for his house has consumed him. This place was to be a house of prayer, but they have made it a den of robbers, a place where they make profit. Out of pilgrims seeking to pray to our God. And then a beautiful thing happens. All those who are sick, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the diseased come to Christ and Christ heals them. It is on this day, later on in the day, that a group of Greek converts to Judaism approach our Lord And it's not recorded in John 12, but by Christ's response, we can discern what they're talking about. They're asking Him about discipleship. They're asking Him, if there are any uh, possibilities about them becoming disciples of Christ. Our Lord tells them that the road to His kingdom is through suffering and death. That is the road that He is on, the Calvary road, that He has come to die so that God the Father might have a bountiful harvest of salvation in the future. And any who would follow Him must all fo- also follow Him to suffer and to die. And then abruptly in verse 27, His thoughts of His death prompt Him to turn His attention away from these great Greek believers and turn His attention towards His own soul. As He considers His own death, as he considers his own being lifted up on the cross, he is so moved, he is so distraught over the contemplation of his own death on the cross, that he pours out the pain of his soul, and he articulates it into an economy of words, and he considers it in his internal monologue here recorded in verse 27, and he considers what he would do. What to do with this sorrow? What to do with his own soul that is so wrought with pain and trouble? And he says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so we will see Christ's five steps to the cross. In verse 27. Christ takes five steps. Step one, step two, three, four, and five. Towards the cross. First step is the complaint of Christ. Verse 27. He cries out, Now is my soul troubled. And when He says "soul," He's pointing to His inner man. The depths of His being, His soul, His heart, His mind. And He says that His soul is the Terakai. It's agitated. It is troubled. This verse indicates that a mighty disturbance exists in the soul of Christ. It's been going on for some time now and it has now become very intense. The horrors of the impending cross were felt by Christ as never before. Many believe that Psalm 69, 1-4 through four is a messianic psalm. Prophetically Revealing the soul of Christ in His anguish. Psalms 9, 1-4 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched; my eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. Another Old Testament passage familiar to many of us. Describing the coming Messiah is Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering. Now, many think that this verse is talking about just the the crucifixion, just the torture and the pain that Christ endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers, climaxing at at the cross. But that is mistaken. This describes the whole earthly existence of our Lord. He was a man of sorrows. That phrase, man of sorrows, is a characterization. In other words, our Lord was characterized by sorrow. That defined His inner man. We, we see it in verse 27 because He voices it, He articulates it. But that is That is the state of his heart, state of his soul throughout his life. Sorrow was not just an element of his life, it is what characterized his life. There is no record of Jesus laughing at all in the Bible. And I am sure he laughed. I am sure he smiled because he was fully human. But because what characterized him was sorrow, the Bible makes no mention of him smiling, of him laughing only the many tears and the deep sadness of Christ. As he encountered sinfulness and wickedness firsthand as a thrice-holy God, his heart was often troubled. In Mark chapter 3, remember, he was at a Pharisee's uh, home, and there was a man who, was, who had a shriveled hand, and Jesus healed him of this pediment, Instead of rejoicing at God's miracle, they were angry that our Lord would heal on the Sabbath. So our Lord asked them, What is lawful? To do evil on the Sabbath or to do good? They remained silent. They remained; Their hearts were hardened towards Christ. Instead of being humble at the miracle worker, they were obstinate. Seeing how sin had corrupted and ruled their hearts caused our Lord's sorrow. Mark 3, He looked around at them in anger. And He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. A few weeks ago, we looked at John 11, 33 and 35. The same word, terakai, is used to describe the condition of His soul. As he, as he saw the weeping of Mary and Martha and the crowds, as he saw the consequence of sin, in the lives of whom he loved, his soul was troubled and Jesus wept. Luke 19 tells us earlier in this day, when Jesus descended on the Mount of Olives and he saw the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the city would be destroyed, God would forsake it, caused him to openly weep over the city. He was a man of sorrows throughout his life, not just on the cross, not just in the garden, but throughout his life. Sorrow, sadness, grief, his soul being troubled, characterizes his life. Now here in John 12, if you're a cursory student of the Bible, you would say, why is our Lord troubled? Why is He agitated? He ought to be ecstatic. He ought to be happy. This is His coronation. He is coming into the city and the masses are chanting Hosanna. Chanting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David. They are ascribing Him the title of King. He should be happy. It's a celebration. Why is he troubled? Why is he sad? Some believe that he is sorrowful because he's thinking about him being betrayed by a loyal friend, Judas. Um, Some... 55, 12, and 13. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is my close friend who has lifted up his hand against me, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. That is the reason for his sadness. Others believe, no, yeah, Judas caused him sorrow, but more than that, it is... The prospect of all his disciples denying him, betraying him, that caused him sorrow. Job six fourteen and 15, A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the, the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow. So some believe the prospects of all His disciples deserting Him cause Him such sorrow. While some others believe that the, perhaps the cruelty and the injustice of sinful men is causing Him this trouble. The physical suffering that He will endure soon, being tortured by the soldiers and His death on the cross, being spat upon, having the crown of thorns put upon His feet, head, being flogged with a whip, being nailed to the cross, that is causing him sorrow. Well, I am not convinced. I personally believe it is ludicrous to think that at this sacred hour he was sad because of Judas' betrayal or because of these fickle disciples will deny him. Or even the physical suffering that dissuaded him to cause him to think, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? I refuse to believe that our Lord was a coward. That he was so afraid of the physical pain of the cross that he considered backing out and asking God the Father, Deliver me from the physical pain. I refuse to believe that because mortal men have endured worse pain. Socrates, in the prison cell in Athens, very cheerfully drank poison. He died without fear, sorrow, or protest. So was Socrates braver than Jesus? What about Christian martyrs throughout history? The apostles, after they were flogged by the Sanhedrin, went away rejoicing, considering that they were worthy of suffering insult and reproach and suffering for the name of Christ, were the disciples, apostles more brave than Christ? In the post apostolic period, is a long list of those who suffered and died for the name of Jesus Christ. Ignatius, in the second century, he begged the church not to do anything to procure his release from prison, because he wanted to be a martyr for Christ. Polycarp, at the age of 86, the pastor of Smyrna was burnt at the stake and he was being burned alive. He prayed, O Father, I thank Thee that You have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. Remember Perpetua from last week. How she said, I cannot be called by anything other than what I am. And she left her infant son behind. And they and she died courageously in the arena by the sword. Were they more brave than Christ? It has continued on, this martyrdom in every generation. We have in our generation men like Jim Elliot who was killed with three others trying to get the gospel to the Aqua Indians in Ecuador. We have Mr. Graham Stainer who was burned alive in his Jeep with his two young sons in the mission fields of India. What about this past week? Four missionaries were gunned down in Iraq. Were they more courageous than our Lord? Was this a moment of cowardice in the life of our Lord? Is this true that the martyrs were joyful, but our Lord was sorrowful? The martyrs were eager, but Christ was reluctant? No. May it never be. A thousand times no. Christ did not reconsider his His call, his purpose, because of Judas or the disciples or the physical pain. As we look at the, as we consider Christ's prayer in Gethsemane, it, it gives us the answer why Christ was tormented in his soul in John chapter 12. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He went to the Father three times and He prayed this prayer. May this cup be taken from Me. Can this cup be taken from Me. The cup symbolized not the physical pain, not the crucifixion. The cup symbolized rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, the cup symbolized God's holy wrath, symbolized rejection that he would experience from God. Jeremiah 25:15 and 16 describes the cup as the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25:27 as well, talks of the cup as a cup of God's wrath. Our Lord's soul was troubled here because on the cross, all our sins would be laid upon Him. And the resultant consequence is that God the Father would turn His face and reject Him as His Son. He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 This was shocking for the sinless Son of God. The, the, The thought of this, of being rejected by God the Father, filled our Lord's soul with grief and overwhelming sorrow. The thought of being spiritually separated from God on the cross caused Him Inexpressible torment. This movie about the passion, I think rightly portrays the physical pain of Christ. But that's nothing, really, it is nothing, compared to the spiritual sufferings of Christ on the cross. See, why did Christ die on the cross? Rather than being beheaded, rather than falling over a cliff, rather than being stoned. Why was He so tortured? Because that was the closest thing that God can do to reveal the spiritual agony that His Son experienced on the cross. It is revealed when He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have You forsaken me? That was uh, the dread, that the fear of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. He said, Father, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Take my life. Take my kingdom. Take everything. But do not take from me your presence. Well, that exact thing happened to Jesus Christ. You know, a few weeks ago I talked about and I began our study with rejection and how painful it is, social rejection that when we are snubbed by our friends, or even snubbed by strangers, there is a visceral response that can be recorded by our imaging system. Because it is so sharp. It is so graphic. That, that, that when we when experience rejection by people, we feel it physically. And I talked about how Christ came to Jerusalem not to be embraced and worshipped and affirmed by the people, but to be rejected by the people the city, but above all, the greatest, the most painful rejection Christ would, the greatest pain came when he was rejected by God the Father. Just consider that, being rejected by God the Father. This is what John Calvin says. The death which he underwent must therefore have been full of horror, because he could not render satisfaction for us without feeling in his own experience the dreadful judgment of God. And hence we come to know more fully the enormity of sin for which the Heavenly Father exacted so dreadful a punishment from his only begotten Son. Let us therefore know that to Christ, death was not a sport, it was not an amusement, but that he endured the severest torments known to man on our account." So our Lord considers this, and he blurts out his complaint, My soul is troubled. And he considers a potential remedy. Now what shall I say? It's a very revealing question. We're listening in on Christ's internal monologue. Christ is speaking to himself. He's not talking to the Greek believers. He's not talking to the disciples nor the crowds. He's talking to himself and he says, what shall I say? What shall I state? The vivid realization of this inexpressibly dreadful uh, experience of of, of the cross shakes Christ's soul to its depths. So He considers an option, a, a way out. What shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour, and for Christ it was an option in terms of ability. Matthew twenty six, fifty three through fifty four, when Peter endeavored to save Christ, Christ rebuked Peter and said Do you not think that I cannot call on do you not think that I cannot call on my father and that you will at once put at my disposal more than seventy two legions of angels? eighty thousand angels. God will put at my disposal if I call on God. And Christ could have done at any time and be delivered. That was an option for him. And Christ considered it. But the third step is that it was not an option for him. He he steadies himself. His will was completely submitted to the Father. Here, he, he quickly... Is resolute. He sets himself on a direct course to the cross. He says, No, I will not ask my Father to save me. It is but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He says, I will not ask. I will not pray. Now, this is Sunday. On Thursday night, he doesn't ask. He keeps His Word. Our Lord is holy and perfect. See, on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, He is resolute in the cross. But Thursday night, with the cross being imminent, the judgment, the wrath of God being imminent upon Him, the Garden of Gethsemane, He doesn't ask to be delivered, but He asks, is there another way? Can this cup pass from me? Is there another way that I can glorify you? Is there another way that the elect can be saved? And I think I said this before in Mark's account. Mark records. And where did Mark get his information from? He gets it from Peter. So, I don't know. This is not in the Bible, but maybe Peter was away for a few minutes. And Peter heard Christ saying, Abba, Father. Jesus goes to the Father and He says, Daddy, Daddy, is there any other way? He still doesn't pray for deliverance. But He asks, if there's any other way. But in verse 27, He is resolute. So He makes the fourth step. He commits Himself to the glory of the Father. Verse 28, in some versions it might be in the latter part of verse 27 Christ says Father glorify your name glorify in the Greek is an imperative command second person singular So Jesus is saying Father you glorify your name It is a directive prayer It is a prayer of commitment Father glorify Your name. You glorify it through my life and through my death. Father, glorify Your name. And we see here the significance of God's name. importance of God's name. Two weeks ago, we went to the Shepherds Conference and um, all the attendees, we pay about a couple hundred dollars to go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Well, Saturday, I need that day to study Daniel 9. I mean, not to study it, but to review it, right, for Sunday. So, usually I go Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And Saturday, I don't go to the Shepherds Conference. So, we're sitting, standing there Saturday, Friday night. And Peter Dang, Huey's brother, is there. And he had to sit in the overflow room. He doesn't have a name tag. He can't go into the main, main conference room. And Peter's like, "Now, I would love to come tomorrow. I'm like, hey, Peter. You know, I'm not coming tomorrow, so I'll give you my name tag. Right? You can wear my name tag, they'll let you in, and you can attend the Shepherd's Conference. But I made one request. Peter, watch your conduct. Right? <laughs> Don't do anything foolish. Right? Don't ask any weird questions. <laughs> Don't go up to MacArthur and say anything weird. Why? Because you're wearing my name tag. <laughs> James Shin from Cornerstone Bible Church. All right. What you do, what you say on Saturday will be reflective on me. So I said, Peter, I looked him in the eye. Right. Watch yourself this day. Why? Well, because, I don't know, my name is important. All right. James Shin. All right. My reputation is on the line. My life. I mean, I'm 34 years old. And as a believer, as a ministry for 12 years... I mean, it's not worth defending, but it is my name. It's my name. And it's important to me because I've worked hard to maintain a good reputation, good conduct before God and man for the glory of Christ. Well, how much more important is the name of God? How much more important is the name of God? God entrusted His name to the nation of Israel. Moses said, "How can I go without a name?" God, "Give me your name and I'll go." Exodus 3. God said, "My name is Yahweh. You tell them the name of God. I will entrust it to the people of Israel." Therefore, when Moses came in Exodus 5, he came in the name of God, Exodus 5:23. When the nation of Israel was redeemed and they sat under Mount Sinai waiting for the Ten Commandments, one of the direct commandments of God was, Do not take my name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Exodus 27, God said, My name is holy. You are to revere my name. Do not blaspheme my name. The Levites were chosen specifically by God to stand in the temple of God and minister in the name of God Deuteronomy 18:1 God delivered Israel for his own name's sake 1 Kings 8 The temple was built as a house with the name of God God said, "My name will be upon this place, upon this temple" Jesus Christ came in the Father's name. Matthew 21.9 John 10.25 Jesus did His work in the name of the Father. After people become Christians, we are to baptize them in the name of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have the same name. Matthew 28.19 Revelation 14.1, 14, 14, the 144,000 redeemed Hebrews who will go out and proclaim the Gospel will have the name of God written on their foreheads. Zephaniah 3.9 says that in the Millennial Kingdom, God will overturn the Tower of Babel. He will give them all one language. Why? So that they may all call in unison on the name of God. He wants everyone to speak on the name of God with one voice. Deuteronomy 28.15 says that His name is glorious and awesome. Nehemiah 9.5 says God's name is glorious. Ezekiel 39 verse 7 says His name is holy. Isaiah forty eight eleven. God says, I will restore Israel for my own sake, for the sake of my name. Our Lord is saying, Father, glorify Your name. May Your name be glorified by my life, by my death, the cru- crucifixion that I will go through, May your name be glorified. God entrusted his name to Israel, and Israel didn't glorify it. In fact, God's name was profaned among the Gentiles. Non believers blaspheme the name of God because of the sinfulness of Israel. God entrusted his name to Jesus. What will Jesus do? Will he obey? Will he honor the Father? Jesus, says, yes, I will. I will honor your name. Glorify your name through me. Well, the fifth and final step is the Father's confirmation. The Father responds in an audible voice I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I've glorified it in the past through my blessings and my judgments and now again through the judgment that Christ will endure on the cross and the blessings of those who will be saved I will glorify it again much time has passed let me just go through some concluding thoughts I have several concluding thoughts applications if you will Thoughts that we are to think through as we focus and close our study. The first thought that I want to leave you with is, if to bear our sins and to undergo God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, what was it like in reality? There's a little window that opens up in John 12, 27. And we see the heart of Christ and it's troubled at the thought of the cross, at the thought of the rejection that He would experience. If just the thought was terrible, horrible, horrific, what was it like when it actually happened? On the cross, we cannot fathom cannot imagine the pain that he experienced on the cross all alone let's consider that let's consider that as we consider our trivial pains our trial our so-called trials our so-called hardships and heartaches that we go to Christ and we pray and cry and say, Lord, I'm going through a difficult time. Lord, I'm suffering. I'm having a hard time here. Well before we go to Christ with such prayers, let's consider for a moment what Christ experienced on the cross. Secondly, let's consider Christ's prayer in Gethsemane and by Christ going to the cross, let us consider that there was no other way for man to be saved. Christ said, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as Your will. Is it possible, Father, according to Your redemptive plan, that sinners might be saved, that You be glorified in any other way? And God's hand saved. We cannot be saved any other way. We cannot save ourselves. We don't meet God halfway. We don't cooperate with God to achieve nor gain our salvation. Jesus must die. He must be our substitute. He must be the ransom and thereby secure our salvation. There is no other way. So therefore, today there is no other way for men to be saved except by the gospel of Christ. Throughout this world, unless... We cross borders and cross streets. Unless we preach the word of God, the gospel of Christ, there is no other way that men cannot be sa- men can be saved. There is no other way. There is a growing idea that if you just follow the light within you, you'll be saved. If you're a good Muslim, good Buddhist, right, good Jew, then God will lead you to truth and be saved. That is blasphemous. That is completely contradictory to the Gethsemane experience. If there was, then Christ died for nothing. Christ prayed that prayer if it was possible, and God the Father said no. Thirdly, our Lord's agony reveals the wickedness of our sin. It tells us that our sins must be extremely horrible. our greed, our envy, our cowardice, our every unmentionable sins is revealed in a graphic detail in the spiritual and physical agony of Christ on the cross. As we consider that, can we not feel shame, not feel sorrow and grief over our sins? Do we mourn because of the wretchedness, the sinfulness of our souls? Do we weep? Do we call ourselves wretched? What a wretched man I am today as we consider the cross of Christ. See, for us, we sin and it just goes away. Like Christ, Jesus paid for all. Right? Jesus paid it on the cross. great. My sins are forgiven. Our sins don't disappear. There's a consequence of our sins. Every sin we commit, there's consequence. And we see it in the cross of Christ. Fourthly, we discover that God's love must be wonderful beyond comprehension. I mean, we see the cross of Christ and it's the demonstration of God's love towards us. I mean, God should have and could have quite justly abandoned us to our fate. Our Lord could have left us to reap the fruit of our own lifetime full of sins. It's what we deserve. Is it not? That is not what He did. He suffered and He died unto God on behalf of undeserving sinners. He bore your sins. He bore my sins. This morning, is your heart moved by such love? Is your heart stirred by such mercy and grace? If if it is not, you have no heart. If it is not, you have no soul, you have no conscience. What passes for your heart is a hard and callous, pragmatic, calculating machine. We see the deep love of God. The cross of our Lord. Fifthly, it teaches us that we can come to Christ with boldness and confidence. That today, even though we are marred in sin, even though we are loaded and overwhelmed with weaknesses and corruptions, we can go to Christ with our sins. Because He is the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because He has been tempted in every way, just as we are. He experienced every temptation, every weakness. He's without sin, but because He has experienced it, He is, to sympath- he is able to sympathize with us. Therefore, we can boldly go to God in prayer, humbly calling upon His name, based upon this truth. And a final thought. Jesus died for God. Jesus lived and died for one purpose. That God's name is glorified. And that's a good son, isn't it? Like in the Asian culture, there is this family name, right? Like in, like in Japan, like they want to go and perform well, not for the medal, not for you know, the advertisement, you know, money that they'll get or personal glory, but they don't want to shame their city, their country, their city, and their name. Why? Because it's their father's name. A good son wants to conduct themselves well because they're wearing their father's name. And a good son rejoices to honor his father's name. And that's all Jesus wanted. Jesus lived and died so that God, the Father's name, Yahweh, might be glorified in this world. That is all that mattered to Him. And therefore, that is all that matters to us as believers. That is all that should matter. That God's name is exalted. That God's name is honored, praised because of our conduct. That is all God wants from us. God doesn't want anything else from you. He is jealous for His glory. He is jealous for His name. And you know what? As I think about it, as your pastor, that is all I want from you. You know, what do I want from myself? What do I want from Cornerstone? What do I want from you? All right. I mean, Bob and I as elders, all your flock shepherds, all the servants here, what what do we want from people here? We don't want anything else. We don't want, really, I mean, I could mention all the things that other other leaders might want, but all we want is that your life might bring fame to God. That your life might cause others to esteem and glorify and praise the name of God. What about you? What do you want out of life? Is it to make a name for yourself? Is it to have other people praise your name? To esteem your name? Or is it like Christ to glorify the Father's name? His quote with a, let I me mean, close with a poem. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there, and I would not yield my will, will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still. He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all but His grace. While memory runs like a haunted thing down a path I can't retrace, then my desolate heart will well near break with tears I cannot shed. I will cover my face with my empty hands. I will bow my uncrowned head. O Lord of the ears that are left of me, I give them to Thy hand. Take me, break me, and mold me the pattern that thou has planned Father we are humbled that you would reveal your soul to us you would open your heart and grant us a glimpse of your heart and your motivation and your desire To glorify your Father in all things. That is why Jesus, we praise your name. That is why Jesus, we are proud to to wear the name Christian. It is our highest boast to be called a follower, a servant of Jesus Christ. Because you, you are faithful to honor the name of God the Father. Because you humbled yourself became a man went to the cross endured its shame and you now sit at the right hand of God therefore Lord we praise the name of Jesus Christ we wear it with honor we wear it with pride Lord we pray that you would grant us such resolve such courage such uh, devotion in our soul that we would glorify your name through our life and through our death. May we consider our lives worth nothing if only we might finish the race, the task given for us, that you might be pleased. In Jesus name, Amen.